Hi, Simon here. And before we get to this week's episode, I just wanted to tell you about our Black Friday course offer, where for one week only, we're offering you our comprehensive online only SUP safety course for 50% off. And that's a huge reduction down to £18.50 for lifetime access. It's full of instructor-led videos, quizzes and downloads with the key information you need to know and it's designed to help you weigh up and make the right decisions as you get on the water. The aim of the course is to give new or intermediate paddlers the help you need to become more self-sufficient. It's all useful stuff and it covers tides, conditions, weather, water flow, planning, cold water kit, beach safety and a whole lot more. This is an offer we only do over Black Friday week. So don't miss out on this 50% offer and you can claim it by going to supfmpodcast.com forward slash course and by using the code BF50. So that's supfmpodcast.com forward slash course using the code BF50 for 50% off and that offer ends at midnight on Tuesday, the 30th of November, 2021. Okay, let's get on with the show. Aloha, and if you're a new paddler, then I want to say a massive welcome to the ever-growing SUP tribe and also to the SUP FM podcast. We're really glad to have you joining us in this incredible and addictive sport. My name's Simon and I'm the host of the Sup FM podcast and ahead of season four we've got a bunch of new and bonus episodes covering some of the key information you'll need as you start to get into the sport. Our aim with the Sup FM podcast is to keep you paddling and to share some of the incredible personalities and the sheer range of things you can do with your stand-up paddleboard and we've got a back catalogue of great episodes to keep you inspired whatever your level so please follow and subscribe to get all the new episodes as they are released every Monday from the end of July 2021. We get our inspiration from the people we interview and obviously the love of the sport, but we also get a massive buzz from the support from you, the listeners out there. And I just wanted to say a huge thank you to one listener in particular, XT Sup, also known as Alex Thornhill who has been a huge cheerleader for the podcast since the early days. And I asked him for a recording recently and say a very public thank you for all your support. And if anyone is starting to learn how to paddleboard in his area, then please look him up. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex, founder of XT SUP, and I'm an ASI SUP instructor. I teach stand-up paddleboarding on the beautiful River Dee near Chester and run SUP events in North Wales and North West England. XD SUP was established back in 2016 out of my passion for SUP. I teach everyone from complete beginners through to helping people learn and develop new skills, confidence and fitness, and also run longer distance paddles to help people get hooked on SUP and adventure. SUP FM is an amazing podcast. Uh, to find out what's going on in the world of paddleboarding and give you an appetite to try other aspects of SUP from racing, whitewater, surfing and more. See you on the water. So today's episode features my very good friend, Sean Scott from New Forest Paddle Sports Company, who, as I speak, have just been nominated for about the fourth or fifth year running as Shop of the Year for the International SUP Connect Awards. He's talking about ISUPs and ISUP packages, what you get when you buy one, the upkeep, the things you can do to improve performance and keep it lasting as it should, and also some general safety advice. So a must listen for any new paddle boarder who wants to get the most out of their ISUP, whatever brand it is. So I hope you enjoy this deep dive into ISUPs with Sean Scott. Hey, Sean, welcome back to SUP FM. Thanks so much, Simon. Good to be back. You did a cracking episode with us previously, which was episode 43. If anyone wants to have a listen to that, it's Ask the Expert. But as you'll know, if you've listened before, Sean, you are a sparring partner of mine. We've spent plenty of time out on the water over the years, and uh, you've taught me a huge amount about paddle boarding. So I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the show and for you to share your expertise. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, it's always good. Always good to help where I can. 
Great stuff. As we're here in Beginner's Week, um, just prior to the launch of the fourth season of the SUPFM podcast. And today we're doing a deep dive into ISUP. And uh, we've had this request from the uh, Facebook group, the ISUP owners group on Facebook. And uh, we've got a few questions that uh, they've asked us, some popular ones that come up generally on Facebook groups. And uh, we're going to point those in your direction and uh, give people the benefit of your knowledge, Sean. Are you, you ready? Yeah, yeah, that's far away. That's, uh, let's try and help some people. Great stuff. So um, starting with Melinda Collings, who is the administrator and the owner of the ISAP Owners Club. And we've got a nice small one for for you here. I'd love if you could touch on the difference between popular brands and the unbranded Amazon boards, the manufacturing process and tips on how to choose the right inflatable paddle boards. I very much doubt whether you're going to cover that in a couple of sentences. I think just to make it a little bit easier. I think if we deal with the brands first of all, because you can roughly chop them into sort of three different levels, can't you? Yeah, as a retailer, we look at brands and we look at what we do um, and who we use and why we use them. Key thing is looking at whether it's a, a manufacturer that actually designs, develops, does their own R&D with the boards, or if it's someone who is literally getting an email from a factory in China and just slapping a logo on it and importing it. That's your main sort of differences between them. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so you've got you basically got three different levels of brands. So you've got the the what I call the windsurf brands. So traditionally, those who are longer established and have grown up in the water sports area and who predominantly came from a, a windsurf brand, um, and those tend to be the more premium brands, the more recognised, the international brands and and most of those tend to have the bulk of the research and development then we've got the mid-level brands those ones who started off as importers and then have refined their service and the sort of products that get produced and then we've got the the straight new setups i would say that those are principal the, the sort of principally the amazon type brands where it's just literally a brand on top of a, a, a pre-made paddle board so, yeah does that kind of fit yeah, yeah um definitely 100 we you are the mid-level brands these days are fantastic but they're using technologies that the expertise brands your windsurf manufacturers you're in your, your brands which have been in the industry for a long time they're using the technologies that those guys have actually designed and developed a couple of years ago Whilst these new setup brands, sort of your Amazon style brands, they are literally just getting whatever they can get their hands on from factories in China. We receive the same emails from those factories as a shop and we decide not to use them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I receive them as well. I'm sure anyone who spent any time in the industry receives quite a few of those. So in terms of like top to bottom, so right from the windsurf brands through to the Amazon types, what sort of difference in manufacturing in terms of the actual boards themselves might you see? A lot of it comes down to the, the materials that are used, how the materials are put together, and then the end of line quality control. So you'll find a lot of the premium brands, they will have someone who will look after quality control. They will check the products at the end of each production cycle and make sure they're safe to come to market. They'll also be using the own materials that they've developed or they've designed or they've worked with manufacturers. So you'll find every premium brand has slightly different constructions, slightly different thicknesses, different types of materials. But they've spent the time and the money and the effort to actually develop a material they feel is suitable for the job, whether it's a stronger, lighter, stiffer, more durable, more environmentally friendly material. That's the brand developing it themselves. Mm-hmm. You're online, place an order and get your board to turn up in a shipping container. They very much, they don't have the controls. They don't have the quality control checks. They don't have the, the awareness of all the materials that are being used. They're effectively buying a product. They're not developing a product. Mm-hmm. Just as an example, you mentioned about the materials that are used in the manufacture. What sort of 
ways might people notice that in terms of the dis- description? So, for example, some have got single skin, some have got double skin. What's the advantages of, of, of that? The, the skins are talking about the top and bottom layers of the board. So there's you know two different types predominantly. You've got your single layer PVC and you've got your double layer, which can be called fusion or there's loads of different ways of calling it, but it's basically two layers of PVC put together. A double layer board will always be stiffer, tends to be a little bit heavier because of the extra layer, but they will be more durable. They're less puncture prone. A single layer board, again, depending on the quality of the material, they can potentially be more puncture prone. But again, it depends on the brand. Some of the premium manufacturers now have got some amazing single layer sort of PVC, which is actually very durable. We, we use some in the school uh, that we, we teach with. Um, and actually, we haven't had any punctures in them. So it does mm. depend on the quality uh, of those layers that are being used. So, yeah, so it's, I guess if it's, yeah, that makes it a bit more difficult to at first look, establish the level of durability, but essentially double layer is, is going to be more durable. And, and in terms of a, a beginner user of uh, a paddle board, let's say they've got a single skin, how can they make sure on a day-to-day basis when they're using it, what sort of things can they do to reduce the risk of, of puncturing it or scraping it in, when they set off? Yeah, so best thing to do is obviously being aware of where you're launching. So if you're going off a beach, what you're thinking about is not scraping your board up and down the stones. You want to be making sure that you're carrying the board into the water, launching it and getting on the board when it's actually floating. That will reduce damage to your board straight away. We've seen it here at the school. If you paddle your board straight up on a beach and then don't want to get your feet wet and you ram it up the beach, you are going to start putting stones through the front. The other thing is thinking about where you're deflating and putting them away. So when you're deflating a single layer board or any board for that matter, you want to make sure you're not doing it on a sharp gravelly surface, ideally on a bit of grass, somewhere soft, somewhere where you're not, when you're pushing the air out of your board, you're not going to be pushing items into the, the, the PVC of the board. And that will keep them pretty, pretty safe, to be honest. Absolutely. And inevitably when you're rolling the thing up and you're trying to get a nice tight roll you're pushing down on it aren't you so if there's anything on the ground that is a a real risk glass or as you say sharp bits of of stone that can really cause damage to it yep definitely 100 that's probably the one area that you're most likely to, to damage a single layer board will be the deflating and packing it up and as I say, ramming the nose of the board up the beach is normally the undersides of the nose, which take the, the, the heavy hits. Mm-hmm. And what about the, the rails, so the, the side part of the board? Is there anything particular that needs to be looked at when a beginner's looking at, at buying their board? Yeah, sorry, okay. Um, the, the rails are an incredibly important part of the board. The top and bottom material at the end of the day, that's, you know, it's just the shape of the board, but the rails are what are giving the board its real strength and rigidity as well. How the rails put together is quite key. So if it's a glued inner seam, what you'll tend to find is over time where you're pumping and deflating your board and rolling it and folding it, the glue will slowly start to, to peel and split, which means the inner seam of your board will start leaking. There is brands out there on the market now that have worked out technologies where you can actually weld the rail and it turns it into a single piece of PVC. So they heat bond the unit together. This means it it makes the board more durable. The seams are less likely to fail and it lasts a lot better. And you're also looking at the thicknesses of the rail technology. If it's quite a thin rail, you'll tend to find the board's quite flexible and it's easy to damage. If it's one which has got lots of layers built into the rail and stiffening bands, um, then they tend to be a lot stiffer board, but an awful lot lighter as well. Mm -hmm. And just because obviously this is going to be a quick run through, just give us a a, a quick run through sort of volume and and width of board and what sort of things people would look for there when they're... Looking to buy a beginner board, yeah? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So beginner boards, the quickest, easiest way to do it, and we do this in the shop as well when we're selling, is basically anywhere between 10 foot and 12 foot. 
as an all-round shape with 32 inch wide or wider and that will predominantly get most adults up and standing. If you are towards the heavier end of the weight range we would always suggest going for a six inch thickness board so that will give you more volume but normally creates more stiffness in the board. The more volume the board has the more float it has the more weight you can effectively put on the board. If you're on the lighter end or looking for kids, you can get away with the sort of 4.75 inch thick boards because actually you don't need the extra volume and the extra stiffness if you are a lighter weight paddler. And a lot of the cheaper ones out there, the ones that are sold in supermarkets and so on, they do have that sort of narrower um, depth to it. And, And what sort of risks could that lead to in terms of usability if an adult say bought one of those boards just because it was priced really well so we we, again we've seen this at the school so it's first-hand experience don't always believe the marketing hype so we have seen boards that were rated to 100 kilos for adults and when they've turned up they've been the same size as the kids boards we use You, you see an adult trying to kneel on it and the water's coming over the top of the board you're struggling to stay on your knees let alone get up and standing it just reduces your ability to actually want to learn the sport and actually take more enjoyment out of it if you're spending a lot of the time just falling in and struggling because the quality of the board is wrong or it's the wrong size for you it's just making your life harder from the way the word go i'm not saying go out and buy a premium brand board just go out and buy something that's the correct size thickness and construction for your personal usage Absolutely. So it's all about the weight, isn't it? And as you say, sometimes the weight or the recommended weights can be overstated. So if you are going for that sort of Amazon level board, then probably worth adding a little bit of additional wiggle room in there just to make sure that the board you receive actually works for you. Yeah, definitely. And if the measurements of the board is done in centimetres, please make sure you convert it to feet and inches, because then actually that will give you a much more understanding. Um, The whole of the paddleboard industry, we all run in feet and inches for our sizing. Um, So that's normally a dead fire giveaway if it's going to be a cheaper board that actually isn't as big as it sounds. So, yeah, get on Google and convert it to, to feet and inches and double check how wide and how long the board really is. Brilliant stuff. Thanks, Sean. That's excellent. And in terms of of fins and so on, so if you're buying an inflatable and and obviously it comes with a fin, there are some different fin options out there, aren't there? And there are pluses and minuses with the various different types. But most of the the sort of the mid-level and the the, um, Amazon level boards tend to have toolless ways of getting your fins in but yeah obviously from a convenience point of view that's really good but it does have its downsides doesn't it yes uh, again first hand sort of experience this year especially with the shop we're getting lots of people coming in who are losing their fins and wanting to replace those kind of sliding clipping style fins as a retailer we do struggle to get hold of that style of fin the other type which is used by premium brands which is a us fin box fin they've been around in the water sports industry for years and you can walk into any water sports shop in the world and pick up a spare fin and a nut and bolt these tallest systems are great if it's with a brand that have good backup and good customer service you should be able to get replacements but it's just being aware and and, and double checking what they actually come with and can you get spares for it if it's a random fitting that no one's ever seen before and you can't get spares if you lose your fin which which does happen and it does happen Mm. on the premium brands as well that's your trip to the trip to the beach or the trip to the the river or canal ruined just by a, a choice of fin yeah and you can lose your fin bolt as well i've done that you only tend to do it once because when you do get on the water you suddenly become very maneuverable and have to really refine your paddle technique to move in a straight line they both have risks but the us fin box is better in terms of uh, picking up the spares as you say so we've got a, a question here about the best way to fold and store an inflatable 
And uh, the question goes, should I roll it around a piece of large diameter pipe or something? I know from many years in hang gliding and paragliding that material doesn't like to be folded in the same places. So what's your view on that one, Sean? A lot of it comes down to the the rail material the boards are made out of. So the boards we use, again, premium quality boards, it's a very stiff rail material. So we actually have to put a crease in to fold the board. We haven't had any issues with that over the last few years. The way the boards are put together, we don't have any problems. But also the bag size limits what you can do. A lot of these brands, the boards come vacuum packed and you get it out the bag once and you struggle to get it back in again. If you've got a decent sized bag, actually, you don't need to fold it around a large tube. You don't need to crush the board into the bag. So actually the size of the board bag is quite key. I'd always tend to wipe them down with fresh water first. If you can dry it before storing it for a long period of time, that's a good idea. And try and keep it in a temperature controlled environment if you can. So you don't want to leave it somewhere where it's going to get really hot and really cold, just somewhere where it's a nice, stable sort of temperature. But it's we tend to say it's more of a fold than a roll. And you tend to be able to get them in nice and comfortably. Obviously, just being careful of your fin boxes. The last thing you want to do is fold over the end of the fin boxes and damage them. Mm, absolutely and and just a bit of added detail on this one i was trying to work this out later um earlier on today i've had my my pedal board for eight years now and it's an inflatable and it's a general one and it's um, a pretty decent brand but i've used it down winding i've used it a bit of touring and surfing and it's been banged about a fair bit and obviously stored for that period of time and it's still perfectly functional. As long as you're sensible, then I think it's it will give you plenty of years of use. When it when these things tend to arrive with you, and when you buy them, they often have the pump rolled up in the middle of the board. Um, so that's one way of making sure that it's not rolled up too tightly. But as you said, Sean, if you've got a nice roomy bag, there's no reason for it to be so tight that uh, it causes it any long-term damage. Yeah, because obviously by rolling items into the board bag, there's every chance you can damage the damage the deck pads. If, you, if you're trying to manoeuvre a board back into a bag with a pump wrapped up around it, the next time you unroll it, you might find your pump scratch your deck pads to pieces. It, it, it's just trying to make sure they're clean. Nothing's in there that can damage them. Take the leashes off, that sort of thing, nice and neatly, and just take your time with it and just make sure you're comfortable getting it in and out the bag. Absolutely. And one of the key things about ISUPs, which is such a benefit, is how how transportable they are and how storable they are. And that, that for most people, is one of the key reasons why they buy them. If you're traveling internationally, I know not many of us are traveling internationally at the moment, but that's certainly a benefit to them. And uh, I've taken mine abroad several times and it just goes in the whole luggage. And generally I put all of my my clothing around it so I can just uh, put one bag in there. And that's worked really well. And the other option is for when you're transporting it in a car, you can obviously put it in its bag in the boot. But if space is a bit of a, a worry or if you don't deflate it very often, then you can take it on a roof rack or a soft roof rack, which are both good transportation options. I would say the the soft one is probably just better for uh, relatively local trips. But if you're doing that with an inflatable, because they're so durable, you don't generally need a board bag for that, do you, Sean? No, they're they're, they're pretty good. There's just a couple of key points, obviously, transporting them on the roof of a car. Um, You want to make sure they're upside down, so the the nose is pointing to the front, and they look a little bit more aerodynamic that way, so they're going to cut through the wind. If you have them the right way up, you tend to find it tries to bend the nose backwards. But also, don't leave them on the top of your roof at full pressure. So again, we've seen this year and last year in the sun, the, the cheaper end brands with the boards actually exploding because of the heat off the roof of a car so if you are going to store it and don't deflate it and you are going to have it on the roof of your car please make sure you run it at a lower psi because by the time you've you've driven somewhere in the sunshine you've parked up and you've got your board off you'll probably find it's actually at the the pressure it needs to be on the water so just be aware of pressures when you are transporting them on the roof of your car that's a very good point okay so that's a quick run through of the various different differences between the brands and a little bit about the care of the boards 
what other things might you expect to have as part of your ISUP package? Most ISUP packages these days, you're going to be looking at your board, obviously. You're going to be looking at a bag, a pump, a paddle, and we would hope a leash as well and possibly a repair kit. So if we go through pumps, first of all, obviously, there's a number of different alternatives and ways of pumping up your board. But most packages tend to come with a single chamber hand pump, don't they? But they do very much differ in quality, don't they? Depending on the brands and the the sort of the levels of brands that, that you choose. Yes, you, you'll tend to find the the entry level brands will just go for the, the cheapest option pump they can get. So they'll normally be a single action, single chamber pump, uh, very sort of universal. They do the job. They're absolutely fine, but they just take longer to pump your board up and they're not the most comfortable pumps to use. You tend to find as well that they're fully sealed, so they're not serviceable. So if you were to need a new O-ring or a new valve or something was to go wrong with the pump, you can't actually get the spares and replace it. It becomes a disposable item. In this day and age, that's not really, really very good. That is how we view it. So your mid and premium end brand pumps, they tend to be, again, some of them are a single barrel pump, but with double action. So it will pump on the up and the downstroke, and then you can select to pump just on the downstroke for the final few PSI. Or you're getting these double barrel ones now, which again, super efficient. You're putting two chambers worth of air in each pump. And then when it gets too hard, you release it back to one chamber. Obviously, it's all done to create the the easiest pumping experience we can get. So when you're looking at the pumps, you're looking at whether they've got comfortable handles. Is the gauge built into the pump in a sensible place? Is, is the hose going to be flapping up and down every time you pull the handle or is it built into the body of the pump? All, all these little bits. But also, if, is the pump actually rebuildable? The, the, the brand we do, all of the pumps are serviceable. So at the end of the year, we tend to take ours as a school. We'll take them apart. We'll clean them. We'll put new seals on them. We'll re-grease them, put them all back together again, and they're usable for another year. That then makes it a lot more eco-friendly, but also that you're not using throwing away a pump just because one thing's broken on it. And how can you tell whether or not your pump is um, serviceable or not? That there's the certainly thinking about my pump. So that's a, a single chamber, but it is serviceable. It's got the screw holes around the, the top element where the where the sort of pump goes in. So you can take that off fairly easily. Is that the same for for the pumps that for the dual action pumps? Yeah, so if you can take the top off, it's normally serviceable. Some of the ones we have seen, they're they're bonded on, so you you just can't get it off, you can't unscrew it, you can't get into the pump. They're they're becoming more rare now, but they are still out there on the cheaper end. But yeah, any of the ones where you can normally take the caps off, the double chambers, you can do that. To be honest, I haven't done it with a double barrel pump, but I would have thought they're serviceable as well. But what you can do is take the whole thing apart, you can replace the seals, make sure the pump's not leaking, make sure it's greased, and then it will still be working efficiently for you. Brilliant. And a lot of people out there get very impatient with the the manual pumping because it does get your heart going a bit. I'd like to treat it as a bit of a a warm-up. But there's an increasing amount of people going for electric pumps, and there are some which are designed specifically for SUPs, and then there are other alternatives that people are using talk to us a little bit about electric pumps yeah electric pumps are a funny one really Uh, the the bulk of people we know that use electric pumps just want to be able to plug it on leave their board to get on with it and they can carry on having a chat and having a coffee normally in that time i've hand pumped two boards in the time it takes to do one electric pump they're not necessarily faster that that's the key thing unless you've got you've spent a bit of money on the pump We, we are talking you know quite a lot of money for a really good pump that will inflate quickly without having a big compressor with high literage you're not going to pump up an ice up very quickly with those small plug-in charger style pumps Mm. so it's just being aware that they are quite noisy they can overheat and they can take quite a long time so we would normally recommend start off with put a load of air in really quickly with your hand pump and then maybe finish your board off with the electric pump. 
obviously make sure if you do go for electric pump that it actually goes to the PSI for your board. So some pumps have got quite a low rating, which means they won't actually get your board to the full PSI anyway, and you've got to finish off by hand. Some of them will go right the way up and be able to work on every single board on the market. It's one of those ones where you pay for the quality of the pump, to be honest. And that there's dangers, aren't there, if you don't set the upper limit correctly, if the, the pump's got that sort of ability or if it's just got no control because you can uh, overinflate, can't you? Yeah, so it, it's being very aware of the operation of your electric pump. So it's being aware of how does it cut off? Does it automatically cut off? Do you need to set it? How, do you have to just watch it the whole time and turn it off? It, it's being aware. It's the same when you use a, a big compressor, which a lot of big schools will will have. You use a handheld compressor with a big charge tank and they, they fill boards up very quickly. But it's being aware that the gauges need to be reading correctly. If, if you're using it with lots of different people, you need to make sure your pressure gauge is correct because if uh, if you've dropped it or damage it and it's reading under what it's actually putting in, there's every chance you can overinflate your board and it can pop a seam and that that's quite a quite a bad thing to be doing. It can cause injuries if your board suddenly blows a seam. Mm, absolutely, it can be quite dramatic, can't it? And in terms of, of PSI, a lot of people when they're pumping their board up for the first time. I don't know why, but it, it seems that people have the idea of over pumping it. I don't know whether they've got lilos or something like that in, in their minds at the time. But very often see photos of people out on the water with underinflated paddle boards. So what are we basically looking for in terms of, of PSI? So every brand and every board, and it doesn't matter if it's premium or it's bottom end or entry level, they, they will all come with a PSI rating on their boards. So it's normally around the valve point. You'll see it written on there. And the ones we use are 15 to 18 PSI. There's some stuff which will only take 10 to 12. There's some stuff on the market which will take 20 to 25. It all depends on what the brand has pressure rated their boards to. So at the factories, they will have tested the boards to a set pressure and they will be built to that pressure standard. Every board will be the same from that brand. So it's a case of checking what it is, make sure you can pump it up to those recommended pressures. What we tend to suggest with the boards we use, because our boards are quite dark in colour this year, we would suggest on a very hot sunny day, you run it towards the bottom end of the pressure, so kind of 15 PSI, because it will naturally expand in the heat. If it was a very cold day, you'd run it at the top of its pressure rating at 18 PSI because it will naturally contract when it gets cooler. All paddle boards will expand and contract in heat and, and coldness. So it's looking at the pressure rating, looking at how much weight you're going to put on the board, look at the temperature and go for what should be correct for that board. Brilliant. And that brings us rather neatly on to the hot weather effect. You take your paddleboard out to the beach and uh, have a little paddle round and then you have a rest on shore. I've seen paddleboards used as windbreaks and various other things on very hot days. What's the danger of leaving your paddleboard out in hot weather unused? So that definitely comes back to the overinflation side of things. So what you'll find is, and it, it especially affects darker colour boards, but it will affect every board. It, the darker the colour, it, it absorbs more heat. What you'll find is your lovely dark blue or black paddleboard will just be getting hotter and hotter and hotter, and the air will be expanding inside, and eventually that air's got to go somewhere. As I said, the, the boards are only pressure tested up to a certain point. So what you'll find is the air is going to find the, the best way out. So it's going to split a seam. Um, that's where the top layer and bottom layer are actually joined together, whether it's through glue or the mechanical heat bonding, it is going to let go. Um, there's only so much pressure they will take. So if it's a really hot, sunny day, try not to leave it out in, in the baking sun. Try and put it in some shade. Or best thing to do is use your pump, drop the pressure down in the board, bring it down to a lower operating pressure. And then that way it's got enough room to expand in the heat to its maximum pressure. So you say use your pump there. Could you just explain how they how people do that? Yes, yeah, so we do this in the school. So uh, all of our kits in a container. So obviously, as you imagine, in a container, it gets very hot in there. So at the end of every session, what we do is we we use our pumps, we attach it to the to the board, see what pressure it's at, 
And then we do a quarter twist out of the pump just to let a little bit of air out of the pump hose where it joins to the board. And we can actually watch the pump gauges going down. So we'll, we'll sit there and hold it. It makes a, a horrible noise, all the air escaping out around your pump hose. But then we will drop it down to its bottom of its operating pressure. So 14, 15 PSI. We then know that we can put them away and store them safely in a big metal box that's painted blue outside in the sun. We've done it before where we've done that in the morning and we've come back in the afternoon after a hot day in the sun and our boards are at 18 PSI and we've left them at 14. That's a, that's a four PSI change just by heat. So it, it is really important. Uh, so it's, it's a lot easier than just pressing the valve and deflating and then just guessing. If you use your pump, at least you've got a bit of control and know how low you're going to let it out. Absolutely. It's a lot more controlled way of doing that. Okay, so let's move on to paddles. Now, that's the other element which uh, comes in an ISAP package. So just talk to me about paddles and, and paddle types that you'd get with the various different levels of uh, paddle boards. Yep. So paddles is a little bit of a minefield for most people. If you look at paddles, a lot of people get very confused very quickly. Your entry level brands, you'd be looking at sort of aluminium paddles. So they tend to come with a very generic sort of nylon blade. They'll have quite heavy aluminium shafts that are normally quite long as well, which means most children wouldn't be able to use them because they wouldn't actually be able to reach the top of the paddle when they're paddling. Other brands do smaller paddles, but the, the downside with aluminium is you, if you're paddling in a salty area, so anything tidal or anything by the sea, you'll start to see corrosion. So all the mm -hmm. fittings start going a little bit manky. You might struggle with the clamps not staying done up anymore, and you might not be able to take it apart if you haven't washed it or cleaned it. The other disadvantage that we've seen a, a lot this year with entry-level brands is people coming into our shop to buy a new paddle because their paddle sank. I'd always suggest if you have an aluminium paddle before you go out and use it, just go to the water's edge, pop it in the water and see what happens. If it floats, brilliant, fantastic. If it doesn't float, just be aware not to let go of it when you're on the water. Most of your midpoint brands and premium brands then offer lots of different upgrade options, whether it's a glass fiber, carbon fiber, bamboo, wood, that there's so many different options on the market. It's the mm. one item we would always recommend upgrading because you'll always become a better, faster, more efficient paddler with a better paddle than you will by changing your board. So yeah. if you can get yourself the best quality paddle you can when you buy your first board, they're normally cheaper, including in a package price. We discount our, our, our sort of mid-range paddles if you buy them with a board. So it's actually more cost effective to upgrade your paddle straight away than it is to buy it at a later date. All these carbon fiber style ones, uh, they tend to float. They tend to have flotation built into them. But again, always double check. Make sure you take it to the water, pop it in the water, make sure it floats before obviously just assuming it does. Absolutely. And in my interview with Steve West, he said that was very much the case. The, the type of paddle that you have has far more of an impact on your enjoyment on the stand-up paddle board than the board itself. So if there's anything to get really obsessed over, it's definitely the paddle. And actually, funny, you should say that about the, the corrosion elements of an alloy paddle. When I got my package, first of all, I was using an alloy paddle and I, I used it in the sea. And God, didn't it take some effort to get it uncoupled and it, uh, because it was absolutely fused together. And uh, yeah, I had to use we, some unorthodox methods to, to free it up. So we, we did exactly the same as a school in 2015. We, we used aluminium paddles, entry level school. We thought, yeah, we'll just use them. They'll be fine for everyone else. That lasted for a couple of months and we changed over to hybrid carbons um, straight away. And we haven't looked back. Even as a school, we'll give you a quality paddle because you get a better experience. You know, we don't have to worry about them sinking, but we know we don't get the corrosion issues with them. Absolutely. And just in order to to guard against that, if you do have an alloy paddle, then please make sure that you undo it, separate all of the parts, rinse them off and preferably dry them down and then store them separately. And, and that way, there's absolutely no chance that anything's going to get uh, fused together. Right, Good stuff. <laughs> so. We've, we talked a bit about paddles. We talked a bit about the pumps and so on. And the final 
bit of the package which you would hope to have is a leash. So I know that the quality of those do vary as well, but that's a really important part of the safety setup of a board, isn't it? Yeah. And again, it's the type of leash for where you're paddling is really key. So depending on the brand, we've seen some this year, which I think you'd use to walk your dog. They're just mm. a bit of rope with a clip on. Um, that That's fairly terrifying. We've mm. seen fairly good coiled leashes, straight surf leashes, waist belt styled leashes. There's so many different types on the market now. And it's just being aware of wearing the right leash for where you're paddling. So it may well be that your board comes with a leash. And it will do the job. It will will attach to your ankle. It will keep you attached to your board. But it might not work in certain types of conditions. So if you're paddling out on the sea, ideally, we're looking at a a heavy duty surf style leash. That way, if you fall off, the board's not going to spring back at you. It's also going to cope with waves better. If you're on flat water on rivers, stuff like that, a coiled leash so it's not dragging in the water, that's normally a better option. Boards should come with a leash these days. Most of them do, I believe. But it's just being aware that actually, yes, it's got one, but you may have to buy one for where you're actually using your board and what's the safest option for you to have. That's very key. And the best thing to do with that is always speak to your retailers that you're buying them from, speak to your local schools, ask the other paddlers in the area that you're in. If they're all wearing waist belts with quick release, it's probably because there's fast-flowing water if they're all wearing surf leashes, you're probably at a beach. So it's being aware of what you need and where you need it. Absolutely. And and just to run through those different options again. So your surf leash is basically a, sur- uh, a straight leash. So it doesn't have that coil on. And in the sea, really, if it's dragging in the water, it's not a huge biggie. But as you say, if you're using it in surf, what you don't want is you to fall off and then for the board to ping back towards you or to anyone else which it would do if it was coiled and the idea of the coiled leash is to stay out of the water so the advantage of that is for races and so on that's great but also if you're likely to get snagged or snagged up against anything so if you're heading down a river or a stream or something like that there's a danger that if you used a surf leash then that would get caught around things And just to say as well, if you are heading around any area which has any fast flowing water, so that's generally rivers or also mouths of estuaries or areas where boats are moored up. And if it's tidal, then it is really important to get a waste leash, a quick release leash. And the reason for that is that um, you can fasten it around your waist or to your PFD. And it has a obviously a quick release element to it now the reason why that's important is because there have been a couple of very serious accidents over the last few years one last year in Cornwall and if the water's flowing very quickly and you fall off your board and the board heads one way around a a boy and you head the other way then you can find it very difficult to remove your ankle leash and as I said that's led to a pretty serious situation in in a couple of cases so that's why there's a particular crusade at the moment amongst experienced paddle boarders and the safety community for people to really think about getting a waist leash and I know that there are some um, brands even some mid-level brands who ship out waist leashes as the default option rather than the ankle leashes there you go quick lesson on leeches leashes now there's a couple of other things which um, we need to cover as we finish off on ice ups a couple of other safety elements and one's related to the fact that ice ups generally are a little bit higher in the water than the harder boards so they they sit up a bit more and therefore they're a bit more prone to being affected by wind so what sort of wind conditions would be looking for if we were a beginner and we were out on the beach on our brand new inflatable paddle board so ideally we've got beach setups around here that we use for lessons and we normally run any on water sea lessons early mornings with a gentle onshore breeze or no breeze. Onshore and offshore does get a little bit confusing for some people if you don't know the terminology and you haven't been involved in sort of the water sports industry before. But an offshore wind is winds that are blowing you away from the beach. 
Now, depending on which beaches you're at in the UK, uh, if you're at some of the ones that are local spots here, we've got nice high cliffs, which means by the time you walk down to the beach, you think, oh, yeah, there's no wind. This is lovely. And then you get five, 10 metres off the shore and suddenly realise that the wind is actually blowing you away from the shore very quickly. That is just being aware before you set off and checking out your weather forecasts. If it's an offshore wind, we shouldn't really be going out on the water, especially on an ice up. If it if it's forecast to get lighter or the winds are for, to stop, wait till that time. Wait till the winds stop. Wait till the wind comes back on shore again. It's better to wait and have a good session than it is to go out and suddenly realise you've got in trouble very quickly. Onshore winds are ideally the best time to be on the water but the downside with onshore especially with an ice up as well is it makes the water conditions very lumpy so you get windblown chop so if you're going out in the middle of the day on a really hot sunny day in the summer you'll probably find the beach is actually quite windy and it's quite choppy and that's because of the sea breeze effect so not many people again understand it if you haven't been in the water sports industry but when the land gets hot the hot air rises and all the cold air from the sea comes in. So early mornings is normally when we get the flattest, calmest conditions with hardly any wind and they're beautiful. We, but the two of us, we've had some incredible morning sessions, haven't we, where it's been flat mm. and no wind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. And the lesson for any beginner or even instructor or, or advanced level paddler is that you need to really be aware of conditions. And I see a lot of comments in Facebook groups about, oh, check your winds and your tides. And that tends to be the default advice. But how? If you don't know the details, then how would you do that? But essentially, if you stick to some basic rules and you keep checking onshore winds only, particularly for, for beginners, and have a look at the at the weather conditions on your app of choice, it's really important to check that because things can go wrong very quickly. There's been numerous rescues. In fact, probably the most frequent reason for rescues, certainly in the UK, has been people going out on offshore winds and just being completely unaware of it. So definitely something to be aware of. Now, there are obviously lots and lots of safety advice and lots of different elements that you can watch out for. But I guess other than paddling with a pal, I think that the the other really important bit of safety advice to to push out there is about keeping some sort of level of communication device on you, on your person, and that's mobile or VHF radio, but more commonly it's a mobile, isn't it, Sean, or a cell phone? Yeah, as an RNLI ambassador this year, that's one of the big things we've been pushing. So I know with every single board package we sell, we will give you a waterproof phone case for free so that you will take your phone out with you. Always check that it's actually waterproof before using it. Make sure your phone is charged before going on the water. And like Simon said, attach it to your body. It's all well and good attaching it to the bungee straps on your board, but if your leash snaps and you fall off your board, you don't have your phone. There's some fantastic footage. Check out the RNLI. It's basically a mobile phone has saved a young paddler's life because he had it on him. So it's really important take some form of communication in a dry bag on your person, not just stored on the board. Brilliant advice. Good stuff. Okay, this was a flying visit through ISUPS. I hope that questions have been answered and and you've learned the answers to some things you didn't really even know that you needed to know. So just to sum up what we've talked about. So in terms of the differences between the brands, we're talking about top to low, we're looking at essentially better service and spares. We're talking about better build quality and better accessories. And also that the better brands tend to invest more time in uh, research and development. And just one final thing to ask you on your view on this Sean there seems to be a certain amount of of snobbery certainly amongst people who have got hardboards versus those who have got ice ups and who are starting out what's your view on that sort of level of snobbery around around performance particularly I'm definitely one of those paddleboard snobs, 100% time. (laughs) You've you've been out on the boards with me. No, it's. I think the most important thing to do is as long as you're safe, you're enjoying it, you get some lessons, you understand it, 
it, it doesn't matter what we're paddling. We're, we're all paddlers. We're all out there to enjoy it. I've seen Simon catch some amazing waves on an eight-year-old inflatable board, which he really shouldn't be catching and riding. And I've struggled to catch it on a £3,000 solid board. It does make you question which one I should have bought. I keep telling you. <laughs> it, it comes down to what, what you're comfortable with. At the end of the day, if you can't transport it, you can't store it, get an inflatable, get some lessons, have fun, enjoy being a paddler. It doesn't matter what everyone's opinion is of what board you're paddling, what brand you're with. If it's got you on the water in a safe, controlled, sensible way, and you're a paddler, and you may, you may want to upgrade later on in life, you may want the next latest, greatest board. But at the end of the day, we're all paddlers, we're all water users. We should all be helping and respecting each other's choices. And at the end of the day, we're one big community. Exactly right. And something that we've been very keen to stress right from the first episodes is this aloha spirit, is collectivism. And you know, essentially, the, the best paddler is the one who's having the most fun out there. Definitely. 100%. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Sean. I hope well, this is... That a... One thing, that's all right. What I would suggest to, to everybody with ISUPS, though, if you, you are unsure... Don't just resort to Facebook groups. Go and speak to a retailer. Go, go into a shop. Go and have a chat. To, support the sub shops that are out there. there. There's so many of us out here with the knowledge, the understanding. and we, We're not here just to sell you any old product that's on the shelf. We're here to help you choose and understand what's going to be the best, safest option for you and for where you're paddling. So please support your local sub shops, support your local dealers. We're here to help you. We're here to give advice. We're not just going to turn you away because you're not buying anything. We do honestly want to help you and make you safe on the water. Exactly. And it, it's what we're all about, whether we're a shop or a podcast. It's all about helping beginners keep on paddling. And we don't want you to stop paddling because of a, a very simple thing that uh, could quite easily be sorted out. So, yeah, absolutely. Speak to a professional, to a shop. They'll be more than delighted to help you. Thanks so much, Sean. And all the details of the various things, including that video to that paddle boarder who was rescued by the RNLI by virtue only of keeping his mobile phone on him will be in the show notes. Thanks so much, Sean. Take care and I'll see you on the water soon. I'll see you on the water soon, mate. Well, thank you, Sean. And if you found this episode useful, that was just the first of four that we're releasing this week. It's beginner's week and we've got so much more on the way. So if you need to work out how to choose your first stand-up paddleboard, if you need a primer on SUP safety or to get the inside line on building confidence and skills on your board, then check out the rest of the beginner's episodes we've got coming up this week. And because season four starts soon, make sure you don't miss any episodes by subscribing or following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Amazon Podcasts or your favourite app. Okay, wishing aloha to all you new paddlers out there. We're really glad you've joined the tribe and we'll see you on the water.